Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. This last week, um, I was working um, on the weekend um, on some projects in the basement. Um, we're trying to finish off the basement the best that we can, and so uh, I'm down there painting some and working with foam insulation and cutting some wood um, in order to build walls. It's, it's not the, the cleanest work. Um, and I came upstairs for dinner um, with the family one night, and as I walked into the dining room, Laura looked at me and she just said, uh-uh change your clothes, <laughs> right? Meaning you belong here, like this table is your table, but you can't come here like that. Like you need to change your clothes. And um, maybe you know the, the power of dress um, in the last few months. Perhaps you've gone to work with only, <laughs> only a, a button-up shirt on and pajamas on. Perhaps you've not gotten ready for the day when you started your work day because you can at home. And there's something that happens with that, right? It, it, it has a way of changing your, your mindset, changing um, your heart, even changing the way that you act and sometimes how productive you can be. Your clothing matters. Well, this metaphor of clothing is actually one of the key ones from the previous passage. And it's continued in these verses as well because the Apostle Paul wants us to grab hold of what does it mean for you to grow up in Christ? And in order for you to grow up in Christ, in order for you to reach maturity, you need to put some things off and you need to put some new clothes on. And so for our passage today, there is the continuing of this theme of an expectation of maturation. And Paul is going to get into the nitty gritty of it. I was talking with a, a friend in our church this week. Um, he's a guy who's one of his temptations is towards lust. Um, and pornography. And there's a number of men in our church that struggle um, and are tempted in that way, and some women as well. And the, the way in which growing up in Christ looks for that particular guy is he's got to put off some old habits of relating and, and, and dealing with life and put on some new habits that are healthy. Some old ways of processing and of coping need to be left behind because he's a new creation. And some new ways need to come. But as we're talking about it, sort of the, the debate comes about, right? To filter or not to filter, right? And, and he, he's wrestling with what I want to do. I want to be authentic and I want, to, I want my heart to change. But I also know that my habits need to change and my actions need to change. And, and I just said to him, and I'd say to you, that's a false dichotomy. That's a false way of looking at change because your habits, according to Jesus, reveal your heart. And your heart is formed and renewed and shaped by your habits. They go hand in hand. The, the question is not either I change my heart and make it right or I change my habits, but it's both. Change, growth, and maturity involves both the affections, what your heart desires, and actions, the habits that you do. And so here we go, into the nitty-gritty. Having prayed for power, having pressed this vision of maturity onto the church, and now getting into the weeds of what virtues, 
What character qualities, what, what would Christ formed in you actually look like? And I'd like to tag this text in our exchange today, change of clothes. And to do that, we're going to look at five things that the apostle is urging the church to change. Here's the first, ready? The first issue is honesty. They need to move from falsehood to truth. They need to move from falsehood to truth. Look at chapter 25 or chapter chapter 4 verse 25. The apostle says, "Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Here's the pattern that we see in the next several verses. It's um, addressing five issues, and, and, and Paul always is going to say, here's the negative, what you need to put off. Here's the positive, what you need to put on. And because he knows that just the, the wisdom is not enough, he's going to offer us motivation. So helpful because the Christian life is hard enough to live as it is, and the apostle knows that we need every motivation that we can get in order to follow the Lord Jesus unto maturity. So what's the negative here? What what does he ask the church to put off? Falsehood. Literally lies, or perhaps pretense, sort of the presenting of a version that's not completely true. And what's the positive? To speak the truth. She's already spoken much about truth, written much about truth. The church is to grow by speaking the truth in love to one another. But the motivation here is interesting. Why? Why should they abandon falsehood and then move on to truth? Well, they should do it because they're members of one another. They belong to one another. I don't know if you realize this, but lying is actually a pretty big issue in our society. Like most of us don't realize all of the half-truths and the white lies and the subtle ways of bending the truth that we employ every day. Most people lie. I mean, we all do it for different reasons though. Like we may do it to um, be acceptable by another person. We may do it to preserve our own comfort. We may do it to appear powerful before someone else. Whatever the reason, the motivation for lying, Paul is saying there is a grander motivation that you need to grab hold of if you're going to be honest, even when it's uncomfortable, and speak the truth. Even though you're so accustomed to lying and fibbing in various ways that it's subconscious, there is a motivation that can grab hold of you and start to bring that pattern and habit into the light. You're members of one another. Members of one another. Lying can no longer be a resource in the Christian arsenal because we literally are parts of the same body. The logic is, is, is like this. If, if your foot sort of decided to get sly and not tell the other foot, hey, I'm walking away. I'm going to lie that I'm standing here with you, but I'm sort of drifting away this way. And you know what happens if that dishonesty persists with one foot running away? You end up in the splits. (laughs) that's That's the effect on the body. How could we lie? How could the hand lie to the eye what it's doing? How could the leg lie to the arm what it's doing? We are connected to one another and dishonesty disconnects us. There is no capacity for relationship. We end up in splits. 
when it comes to honesty, you need to put off lies and put on false or put put on truth because we are members of one another. All right, issue number two. This one is to deal with the emotions, anger in particular. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do you see the pattern? Repeat it again, right? Here's the negative. Do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Did you catch the positive? It's a shocking one. Be angry. <laughs> I mean, you don't hear that in church often, right? He's saying be angry in the right ways. Why? Well, there is a motivation of opportunity. In any situation where your emotions can come into play, like anger, there is an opportunity either for honesty and unity and to walk in the light, or there's an opportunity for disunity, division, and hiding, for darkness to settle in, literally for the devil, it says, to get a foothold, a place. Be angry. Yes, anger can be a good thing. You can express anger right? In a healthy way. The problem is that most of the time we don't express anger in a healthy way. And so in general, we are not slow to anger as a reflection of the way God is slow to anger. And we have a hard time with what James says in his letter in the New Testament that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce a righteous life or the righteousness of God. Now, it's interesting. Even though anger is in some ways perilous, it's a powerful emotion. The apostle is encouraging us to use it. Here's why I know that. Because this phrase, do not let the sun go down on your anger, is actually a different word than be angry. This is the word for provocation, meaning when your emotional anger is provoked by a situation, you need to learn to be angry in a way that is not sin. Meaning, when you are provoked to anger, you need to be angry rather than stay angry. You need to be angry in the right way rather than stay angry, producing all sorts of unrighteousness in the long run. When you're angry in a healthy way, the passions of your heart can actually be revealed. Unity and understanding can actually be gained. Anger can lead to good things. It leads to action. It leads to passion. It can stand for what it's right. Years ago, um, when Laura and I bought our first house living in Omaha, um, I'll never forget the refrigerator that was left with the house. We lived using that refrigerator for a few months, and, and then as, as best I could, repeatedly I scrubbed that thing clean, washed every nook and cranny, sprayed everything that I could think of, but we could not get the smell out of the freezer. We could just not get that thing clean. So eventually we had to order ourselves a new fridge and haul that one away. Because here's the deal, once upon a time, there was good food that was sitting there in that fridge. 
but it sat for too long. It stayed there for too long such that darkness and, and, and sort of stagnancy made it start to decompose and become mold. And here's what happened. What once was meant to nourish and to lead somewhere had become foul, such that the whole fridge needed to be thrown out. Emotions are kind of like that. When you let emotions stay and sit, they can decompose and be left in the dark such that when you open that door finally, it is the stench that you could not imagine. But what happens when you use emotions in the proper time? They actually become things that nourish and bring about life and unity within a community. Rather than staying angry, we should be asking when we feel angry, what is the Lord trying to lead me to? What, am I, what is he showing me about myself? Rather than letting things sit, we need to act in ways that are healthy and realize that that takes time to learn. A kind of practice is needed in order to wield anger in a way that's positive and healthy. So when it comes to anger, you need to change your clothes. You need to learn how to be angry so that you don't stay angry, letting bitterness and all sorts of other things stank up your life. Number three, stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, verse 27 says, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The pattern continues here, right? The negative, no longer steal, and then the positive, labor, doing honest work with your own hands, and then motivation, something to share. Now, again, this could be an advice that easily in our society we sort of push to side and say, that's not a big deal. But when you look at the millions of dollars that are wasted in corporate theft and employee shoplifting and padding of expenses accounts every year, you see the impulse of grabbing is well at work within us as a people. On the regular, if you take what is not yours, or even occasionally take, Paul would say here, because of the language is a noun, a thief, that you actually are the kind of person who steals. That's the force of this verse. If you take what is not yours, you are the kind of person who grabs. Now listen, I have three young children who've been playing at home for most of the last several months, and um, what I've noticed is that there is nothing that makes chaos out of the sandbox like taking another kid's toy. Stealing, as it were, always disrupts community, breaking it down, causing quarreling. Grabbing is a materialized self-concern that doesn't have concern for others nor love for neighbors, and Christians are therefore to put off grabbing and to put on generosity. Notice here, the challenge is to labor. Literally mean to toil, to spend yourself until weary. Those who had made a living on thievery should now learn labor to the same toil and degree that they could provide for themselves and not only provide for themselves, but because of the generosity of God towards them, they should be generous with others. The hard work in the Christian life is meant to provide things for others, not just for self but 
the labor that you undergo on a day-by-day, a week-by-week, a month-by-month, a year-by-year basis is to be to the point where you can share with others what you have. When it comes to stealing, when it comes to grabbing, you need to change your clothes. Rather than grabbing, you have to become generous, the Apostle Paul says. Okay? So let's talk. Number four is talk. Talk. Let no corrupting talk, verse 29 says, come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, if you're under the persuasion that people are generally good and humankind is really well off if we would just sort of try a little bit harder to be kind to one another, this one's for you. Listen to people talk. I mean, you're serious. If you listen to people talk, and when you reflect on the things that people say, there is no way that you can deny the sinfulness and the self-centeredness that is within the human heart, right? No habits like speech quite reveal the brokenness of humanity. We say the most astonishing things to one another. We have a way of corrupting, rotting situations and relationships by the things that come out of our our mouths. That is the negative in this, right? Corrupting talk, literally talk that breaks down. And the positive then is we are to employ talk that is good for building up as fits the occasion. And then here's the motivation, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace to those who hear. We ask this in our house all the time. Hey, did what you say build up or did it break down? Or we might ask, hey, was that a gift to your sister? Was that a gift to your brother? Did it benefit them or did it harm them? Learning to identify speech, even subtle forms of speech, even ways of intonation that build up rather than break down is the charge that Paul is making here. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is incredibly clever. It's just false. Words hurt, and we can build up, of course, a bit of an immunity to the criticisms of other or to the harsh words that others say to us. But words do have an ability to tear down, the Apostle Paul is saying. Taming the tongue is perhaps the most difficult character trait to develop in the Christian life. This is why James says the tongue is a restless evil and who can tame and control it? If you look at the ways in which people have talked about developing virtue, forming character throughout the ages, everyone from Aristotle to Aquinas talks about two incredibly important pieces. First, you have to imitate, imitation of others. And then you have to practice. For some of you, you've learned ways of speaking to your friends, your spouse, your kids, that you simply need to try on another's ways of speaking. You need to imitate someone else and then practice to the point that a new habit is formed, even such that your heart might even be changed by those practicing of habits that you might speak with far more grace and benefit to those around you. 
speech is one of those subconscious habits that needs to be reformed within us. Where do our habits come from? Well, they come from our hearts. They come from our hearts, from the very things that we love and that we're oriented towards. So changing your clothes, according to thinker and philosopher James K.A. Smith, is a matter of discipleship. And discipleship at its core is simply the rehabituation, the rehabiting of your loves such that you love the right things. This is why discipleship in many ways requires more reformation than information. Rehabiting. That is the work that Paul is charging us to, that we would put off old habits and we would put on new habits like clothes. When it comes to speech, you need to change your clothes in order to grow up in Christ. Finally, let's go to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The negative. Do you see the animosity here? Things like um, wrath and anger and bitterness and clamor. So meaning yelling. Slander, meaning cutting down a person's character to someone else. All forms of malice and ill will. What he's saying is the animosity that can fester within a community and break it down completely needs to be put off. And the unifying characteristics of kindness and compassion need to be put on. The negative and the positive. And the motivation here is wonderful, right? That we are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. What better motivation do we need but to reflect on how much we've blown it, how often that we have offended others, and how often we've offended God, and yet He has forgiven us. This truly, this, this verse is about animosity and the charge to reconciliation and forgiveness are squarely about offenses. And offenses will come. You will offend others and others will offend you as long as you live together in community or in a family. That is the way that things go whenever sinful people get together. And there is sin indwelling still in me and in you. And so we will offend one another. And what we need in order to maintain unity is to the ability to forgive one another. And that comes from the forgiveness God has given us. But here's the deal. We live in a culture that is so easily offended. We are hypersensitive. And we need the kind of security that comes from the forgiveness of God in order to extend forgiveness to others. Like to put forth an opposing viewpoint is an offense. In our culture, to, to make a, a counter argument is the effect of discrediting and tearing down someone rather than dealing with an idea or engaging in dialogue. We have so weaponized language that everything is an offense. We have so elevated feelings that whenever a situation makes us feel something negative, we call 
blame an offense on the other rather than process our own emotional response, owning it as our response, not they made me feel this. We are so given to offenses that this dynamic of the forgiveness of God enabling the forgiveness of others is something we need badly, church. I see this in our society. I see this in our church. It's the glory of a man, Proverbs says, of a woman to overlook an offense. Yet we have made a practice of calling out offenses and then publicizing them all over the internet. What would it look like for Christians to be distinct? What would it look like for us to learn to forgive one another? What would it look like for us to brush off an offense? Yes, that's a good way to brush your shoulders off, right? And to extend grace to another, even because Christ has extended grace towards us. If we did that, would you not see that we would represent Jesus in the world in a beautiful way? Would you not see that we would reflect the character of God in a beautiful way? If we model the kind of forgiveness that's possible in Jesus towards others, especially within the church, but also beyond the church, perhaps more people would be reconciled to God because they'd see the power of the reconciliation we've received in Jesus. There's one sentence in this whole passage that stands out to me. It's because it doesn't follow the norm pattern of the other verses with a negative, a positive, and a motivation to put off and to put on. And that's because I think it's a summary statement in a, a helpful way. Maybe you saw me skip over it and were like wondering what he's going to do with that. But this is verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It stands out completely in this passage. And I think that is because among these five virtues that Paul is saying, put off those things and change your clothes and put on those other things, this is underlying all of them. That is, when we speak in ways that are corrupting, when we steal from those and take what is not ours, when we are angry and let it fester, when we pursue falsehood rather than truth, when we continue animosity rather than reconcile and forgive, who is grieved? Not just horizontal people, but the person of the Holy Spirit. Yes, do you see this? Grieving, hurt, is a personal quality. And the Holy Spirit is not a force, not some inanimate object. He is a person who is grieved when you persist in immaturity rather than change your clothes and grow up. You belong at the table. The Holy Spirit says, you belong with the people of God. You are sealed for the day of redemption. Would you change your clothes? Stop grieving me by your patterns of immaturity and your willful sin. Do you not see the falsehood in your life and the pursuit of truth you must take up? Do you not see the lying in your life and the pursuit of honesty that you might take up? Do you not see the anger in your life and the peaceful expression of anger that you need to learn? Do you not see the, in, the unforgiveness in your life and the need for you to extend grace to others? 
You grieve me, the Spirit says. The Spirit alone will give you the power to change your clothes. So when you're grieving Him, how is He going to help you? You need the Holy Spirit in order to work strengthening power in you such that you grow up in the faith, putting off what is not like Christ and putting on what is like Christ so that you might represent Him and reflect His character to the world. A friend of mine um, has been, um, you know, dealing with some issues with a roommate. Lives in a house with a number of folks. And uh, over the last several months, we've walked together as he's confronted that person on a couple things and been offended at multiple points by that person and been back and forth trying to learn patience, operating in these principles in Ephesians chapter 4. And um, the interesting thing about the whole roommate issue is that when you have a roommate, someone you live with that consistently makes trouble for you, it is very much like you are walking with a rock in your shoe. It is like there is no air to breathe in the house. It is a difficult existence. Now I want you to consider that when you believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is given to you in that moment of faith and he takes up residence within you, living in you, that you have this incredibly divine roommate that by your sin you continue to hurt and grieve. Imagine your soul like a house and the spirit like a roommate you can't get along with. And he's the best roommate you could ever ask for. Because not only is he like an earthly roommate living sort of in the next bedroom um, over from you, but he is the one who's actually made the down payment on the future house that you're going to live with him in for all of eternity. He's the one who's put forth the money and the effort to pay your way into a new kind of life. And that roommate... When we sin, we grieve. The Holy Spirit who loves us, the Holy Spirit who empowers us, the Holy Spirit who, yes, convicts us. So may you begin to realize that trusting the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, rather than grieving the Spirit, is one of the greatest assets to your life as a follower of Jesus. Right now, I believe the Holy Spirit, despite the distance and despite a camera and despite the different situations, is speaking to you saying, I've sealed you. If you believe, I've sealed you for redemption. You belong at this table. Change your clothes. Change your clothes. You're not growing up on your own. Maturity is not something you got to figure out on your, by yourself looking at YouTube videos. The Father is with you, affectionately helping you, nurturing you to grow up. The Son, the King, is leading you, showing you new ways and patterns of living in the world. And the Spirit is powerfully at work within you who believe. So family, let's change our clothes and continue to grow up into maturity, into the very likeness of Christ, putting off old habits and putting on new ones that bring Him glory 
and display his great grace within us and within our community. Let's pray. Father, would you do this? Would you help us to know specifically what each of us needs to put off and to put on? How we need to change our clothes. And I pray particularly for those who want to get discouraged that they don't belong at the table because of the things that they wrestle with, that you would speak such kindness and grace and forgiveness to them and also give them such hope and vision of a kind of life that they don't yet know, a way of patterns and relating and of habits that they haven't yet gained. And would you make them to believe that because of Jesus, our great example, and because of the Holy Spirit, that wonderful energy at work within us, that it's possible for us to grow. Change us more into your likeness day by day as we behold your glory, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.